brought a picture that I would like to share with you. If y'all go ahead and put that up. So um, bonus points this morning to anyone who knows who this is. Is that David White? Oh my goodness. Should have known. Should have known. Unless you already gotten on church center this morning. No? All right. There you go. All right. Well, uh, this is John G. Fee. And just because he's bald and has a beard he's, does not mean he's related to me. Although he's a good-looking guy. I mean, I like his look. He's just maybe a pair of glasses. Um, but who other than David White has heard of John G. Fee? No one? Some? Don't feel bad if you haven't. I didn't know who he was until I moved here to Kentucky. Richard Dodd um, shared with me his autobiography, and it's a fascinating read. So if you enjoy biographies and autobiographies, I actually have a PDF file of it and would be happy to email it to you if you're interested. But Mr. Fee was from Kentucky. In fact, he was born in Bracken County. Uh, If you don't know where that is, it's about an hour and a half north, east of us, right up there next to Mason County along the Ohio River. Augusta is in Bracken County. Now, I've always wanted to play, some of you know I coach, uh, have been coaching high school basketball. I've always wanted to play Augusta High School, Um, but I can't get them to play us. When I was coaching the boys and now coaching the girls, I can't get them uh, to play us, but they have the oldest operating gymnasium in the state. Uh, It was built in 1926, Uh, and it's like stepping back into time, kind of like on the movie Hoosiers. Um, But that's there in Bracken. That's where John G. Fee was born. Uh, And John Fee has become kind of a hero of the faith for me. Uh, I want to read to you the first page from his autobiography just to give you an idea of who he was as a man. This is how his autobiography begins. I was born in Bracken County, Kentucky, September the 9th, 1816. My father, John Fee, was the son of John Fee Sr. It's kind of like the Nowers here. Lots of Glenn Nowers. John Fee, John Fee, this is John G. Fee. Uh, But my, my father was of Scotch and English descent. His wife, formerly Elizabeth Bradford, was of Scotch Irish descent. My father was an industrious, thrifty farmer. Unfortunately, he inherited from his father's estate a bondman, a lad bound until he should be 25 years of age. My father came to the conclusion that if he would have sufficient and permanent labor, he must have slave labor. He purchased and reared slaves until he was the owner of some 13. This was a great sin in him individually and to the family a detriment as all moral wrongs are. And that's how his autobiography begins. You see, John Fee was a pastor, but he's also an abolitionist. He went to Lane Theological Seminary in Cincinnati, Ohio, and while he was there, he felt a call from the Lord to return to his native state to preach what he called the gospel of impartial love. Two different churches in Bracken County offered him a position, but on the condition that he would come back and preach the gospel, 
but let the subject of slavery alone. He replied, the gospel is the good news of salvation from sin, all sin, the sin of slaveholding, as well as all other sins. Fee would not move back to Bracken County. He would move to Lewis County, where he would marry and begin a family. Then in 1853, Major General Cassius Clay, he was the cousin of Henry Clay, he was a politician in his own right, a military officer, a large landowner in Madison County. He offered to give Fee 10 acres of it to build a farm if he would come back and be a pastor at a church there on that land. And so with the support of some locals and some help of other missionaries, Fee established a church there in Madison County, a school in a tiny village near his farm. The vision for the school and the church was the co-education of the races. When Fee was asked by Clay to name the new settlement, Fee called it Berea, as David White's already told us. That's okay. Thanks, David. But he called it Berea after the biblical town of Acts 17. Fee's hope for the people of this new settlement was that they would, like the Bereans of the New Testament, receive the word of God, receive this message of impartial love, receive this message of the gospel being for all the races with all readiness of mind. Over the course of the next several years, Fee would be driven out of Madison County and even out of the state by angry mobs. So they didn't receive it initially. He wrote, violent persecution was a frequent occurrence. Fee was assaulted more than two dozen times, and he was left for dead twice. At one time, he was reading by a window at his home when a sniper shot at him but missed. He carried a large lump on that bald head for most of his adult life, where a slaveholder broke a club over it. He writes of one mob demanding that he pledge to leave the state and never come back. Fee responded by saying, I make no pledges to men. So this mob then took him all the way up to the Ohio River. The leader of the mob said to Fee, we're going to put you across this river, and if you ever come back again, I will hang you if it's the last act of my life. Fee replied, do your duty, and I will try to do mine. So they put Fee on a flatboat by himself, and they sent him across the river, and then the mob got in their boats and followed across. His boat landed first, kind of down river from the mob. He walked quickly up the bank, seeing a cornfield, went and sat down in the cornfield so that he was out of sight from his pursuers. The men passed all around him. They couldn't find him, and so they ascended up the hill behind him and left the, left the area. At early dawn, he got up out of the cornfield and headed back over into Kentucky. Now, I share that with you so that you'll know the connection of Berea, Kentucky to Acts 17. I think that's a cool connection. But also to make this very important connection as well. Here it is. 
Wherever and whenever the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, there will be opposition. Count on it. Jesus Christ experienced opposition. The Apostle Paul experienced opposition. John Fee experienced opposition. Wherever and whenever the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, there will be opposition. That's a fact. If you haven't already, please open up your Bibles here to Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 15. This is uh, part two of a three-week series that I've titled Adventures in Acts. Just a quick recap. We're looking at Paul's second missionary journey. He received a call and vision to make an unplanned trip over to Macedonia. Now, while there in Macedonia, he's visited Philippi, Thessalonica, and today he's in Berea. Let's pick up here in verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Now, here's a good question. Why did Paul and Silas have to be sent away to Berea at night? Well, if you recall from last week, it was because they experienced opposition in Thessalonica. What we discovered there was kind of this lethal combination of zealous and jealous, right? These Jews who were zealous for God and also jealous of the work of Paul and Silas, it was a bad combination. They were upset that people were leaving the synagogue and joining Paul and Silas, and so they rounded up some bad characters from out in the marketplace. They formed a mob. They started a riot in the city. And let me take you even further back than that. Before showing up in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas were forced to leave Philippi. This after Paul had experienced his terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. They're asked to leave the city and never to return. So after having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in Asia and then receiving this vision to go over to Macedonia, it's really been a mixed bag. There's been some amazing conversions Lydia and her household, the slave girl, the jailer and his whole household. We're told in Thessalonica that there were Jews and some God-fearing Gentiles and some prominent women who were persuaded and joined them. But there's also been a lot of opposition. And that seems to always be the case. That's the pattern. Just as it was a pattern for Paul whenever he entered a new city to go to the synagogue first. What we're picking up on here in Acts is that it's also a pattern whenever the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. There's opposition. There's always a mixture of reception and rejection. And we should never think that it would be otherwise. You know, one thing you pick up on when you study the writings of Luke, both his Gospels and Acts, is that he often uses the writing technique of compare and contrast 
where he places two people or two events side by side in order to make a point. He does this over and over again in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts. For example, at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 1, in the birth narrative, we see an angel visit Zechariah and Mary. And those are written side by side. These interactions with the angels, the same angel, but two very different interactions. And Luke intentionally writes in this way for the reader to compare and contrast the the different responses. In Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus rejected by the people of his hometown of Nazareth followed immediately by stories of Jesus being welcomed and believed in by the people in Capernaum. Again, these stories are placed side by side for the reader to stop and compare and contrast the responses. At the end of Acts chapter 4, we have the example of Barnabas, who sold a field he owned and brought all the money from that field and left it at the feet of the apostles. Immediately following Barnabas' example of generosity is the example of Ananias. Ananias sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, once again, this is a writing technique of compare and contrast. It's a very effective way, especially then, to write because it forces, it gets your attention And it forces the reader to stop and consider the two very different responses. Well, that's what we have here in Acts chapter 17 today. Two groups of people placed side by side in the story. First, the Thessalonians. Even though some are persuaded, the majority of the Thessalonians reject the message violently opposed the work of Paul and Silas. On the other hand, second, there are the Bereans. We pick back up here in verse 10. Upon arriving to Berea, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Verse 11, here's the compare and contrast. You can hear it, right? Luke gets very specific here. He says, now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. And here's the reason why. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said is true. Verse 12, not just some, but many of the Jews believed, as did a number of prominent women and many Greek men. The way this is written implies that Paul is going into the synagogues just like he did in Thessalonica. He's doing the same things. He's explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. He's going into these synagogues and he's placing the prophecies of Christ alongside the person of Jesus in order to reveal that the Jesus of Nazareth is also Jesus the Christ. And there are two very different responses to his message. One is a response of reception. 
That's the Bereans. The Bereans still stand today as the model of reception in the New Testament. I mean, you look at the Bereans and you say, this is how it's done. The church that Karen and I were a part of in Athens, Georgia, they had a Bereans club. Maybe you've been part of a Bereans club. But it were, it were kids in the children's ministry um, that, that chose, they were encouraged, and they chose to be a part of the Bereans club. And as part of the club, they'd memorize big chunks of Scripture and then present these Scriptures to the church family because that's the kind of things that Bereans would do, right? Luke says, they receive the message with great eagerness, they examine the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now, to translate that into the BCV, and if you're not familiar with the BCV, that's the Barrett-Kaufman version, the Bereans were both humble and hungry. The Bereans were humble and hungry. They were humble, meaning they received the message with great eagerness. That's humility. One must have an attitude and a posture of humility to receive the message from someone else. It doesn't matter if you're a student receiving a message from your teacher or a child receiving a word from your parent. If you don't have a posture and a stance and an attitude of humility, you won't receive it. And so that's this first part that we see here with the Bereans, that they were humble. They received the message with great, with great eagerness. And then also they were hungry. They examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Remember, the Thessalonians just met with Paul on the Sabbath. They were like, okay, cool, Paul. We'll come on Sabbath day, and you can share with us what you want to share, and we'll listen on the Sabbath day. But these Bereans, they wanted to get with Paul every day. They were hungry. You see, hunger is a feeling that happens every day. There's not a day that's gone by in my life where I haven't felt hungry. And the Bereans were hungry. They wanted to get together and study every day, not just on the first day of the week. If Bible study, if opening up this is something you do just on the first day of the week, then you're not hungry, right? Hungry is something you experience every day. There's a hunger for it. Man, I gotta, this has got to happen today. I can't wait a week. There is hunger. Now, the contrasting response is that of the Thessalonians. Instead of being humble and hungry... They were zealous and jealous, as we've learned, and so their response is one of rejection. They told the city officials that Paul and Silas are defying Caesar's decrees by saying there's another king, not just another king, but another kind of king altogether, as we learned last week, one called Jesus. Well, not only does Luke give us these two very contrasting responses to the word, to the message of Paul and Silas here in verse uh, 
in chapter 17 of Acts. But in verse 13 of chapter 17, we see the two groups get to interact with one another. So let's pick back up in verse 13. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds, stirring them up. Verse 14, the brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, brought him to Athens, and then, uh, I'm sorry, the brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So once again, Paul's forced out of the city. He was forced, so says he received this great vision and call to go to Macedonia, and while he's been there, he's forced to leave Philippi. He had to sneak out of Thessalonica at night, and now he even has to leave Berea, the place where there had been the greatest amount of reception so far because the Thessalonians come and bring opposition even there. Let me ask you an important question this morning as we compare and contrast these two responses because that's what Luke wants us to do as readers. As we compare and contrast these responses, the reception of the Bereans and the rejection of the Thessalonians, let me ask you a question. Why does one group of people so graciously receive the message that Jesus is the Christ, yet another group of people so intensely reject it. How is that possible? Why? Well, during these three weeks leading up to Christmas, these weeks referred to as Advent, which again is just a Latin word for arrival or coming. My heart for our church is just to focus our attention on three aspects of the coming of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at the arrival of Jesus to Bethlehem. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time, as Brad mentioned in our uh, communion devotion. This week, I want to emphasize the coming of Jesus into our hearts at the time of conversion. Because that's another aspect of the Advent season. We do celebrate the arrival of, of Jesus to Bethlehem at Christmas time, but it's also an opportunity for us to acknowledge and to recognize, to emphasize the coming of Jesus into our hearts at the time of conversion. And you see, last week, we determined that the message of Christmas, I put it out on the board this week on our sign, the message of Christmas is that there is another king, one called Jesus. It's the message of Christmas. But what I want to emphasize this week is that it's not just the message of Christmas, it's also the message of conversion. It's also the message of conversion, for Jesus did not come into the world just to be born a king at Christmas. 
He came into the world to become your king at conversion. And therein lies the problem. There's the rub, so to speak. That's why there will always be opposition. Because Jesus came into the world not just to be born a king. As Brad mentioned, even Ricky Bobby's cool with eight pounds, six ounce Jesus. But he didn't come into the world just to be born a king. He came into the world to become your king at conversion. That's why there's opposition. You know, an important part of the Christmas narrative that must not be left out of the story is that Jesus was fiercely opposed by the darkness as soon as he was born. As soon as he took his first breath, there was opposition. Turn back to uh, Matthew chapter 2. I mentioned last week we're going to be kind of going back and forth between this text uh, and Acts during this series. But Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, is this great part of the birth narrative of Jesus. I'm going to pick back up in verse 1 again and just start reading. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them exactly what time the star had appeared. He sent them on to Bethlehem and said, go, make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I can go worship him too. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way. And of course, we know the story of them finding Jesus and having that first baby shower as we talked about last week. Pick it up in verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to uh, Joseph in a dream. He said to Joseph, take the child and his mother, escape to Egypt, stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave order to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That's part of the birth narrative. That's part of the story. The arrival of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2 
began with a baby shower of gold, incense, and myrrh, but it ends with the slaughter of every boy two years old and under in and around Bethlehem. It was horrific. It was tragic. It's the absolute worst kind of evil. But it should not surprise us because there's always been opposition to the kingship and kingdom of Jesus Christ. How could King Herod do something so evil and so terribly wicked? Every baby boy, two years old and under, how could he do it? You know, whenever there's a school shooting, whenever something terrible is done to a young person, whenever someone chooses to harm a little one in some way, it's extra horrible. How could he, how could King Herod, as terrible as he was, do something like this? Here's how. Because he wanted to protect his rule and his reign as king. You see, he didn't want there to be another king. He wanted to be the king. And so he he chose to do anything and everything in his power to remain on the throne even if it meant some horrific evil. And this is why there will always be opposition to the message that Jesus is the Christ. The message sung about at Christmas is the same message that must be received at conversion. There is another king, one called Jesus. Some don't want to be on the throne of their lives anymore. They've been there, done that, and they see how that turns out. Some want another king on the throne of their hearts, especially one called Jesus. Yet most do not. Most, like King Herod, want to protect their rule and their reign as king of their heart. And they're willing to do anything and everything in their power to remain on their throne. What about you? Who's the king of your life? Don't know the answer to that question? Then take a look in the mirror because it's you. You reign on the throne of your heart. You call the shots and you like it that way. But there's there's one who came into the world. Not just to be born a king at Christmas. He came into the world to become your king at conversion. And like all great kings... This one has not just come to lead you, but to rescue you. 
to defeat death in your life, to free you from the sin that binds you. You know, there's no better time than during this season of coming, the season where we anticipate the arrival for you to humble yourself, to repent of your sin, and to invite Jesus to come and rule and reign your heart. This morning, I want to invite you to come, be baptized into Jesus Christ. John, John has shown us the way this morning to receive his forgiveness, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be raised to walk a new life in Jesus Christ. Won't you come this morning as we stand together and sing? Straight.